Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Hurricane Idalia, now a tropical storm. Still dangerous, though, as it's moving north after battering Florida. The record storm surges that continue to pose a threat, the homes underwater, and the rescues that are still underway. Plus, new questions being raised tonight after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezes up for a second time one month after a similar health scare. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us. And a searing front page unlike any other. Students in North Carolina summing up an American crisis really better than any photo ever could. The student behind it will join me. I'm Kaylin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, hundreds of thousands of people are still without power in both Florida and Georgia, where Adalia is barreling through now as a tropical storm. It is also lashing South Carolina with heavy rain and sustained winds of 65 miles per hour. Adalia did prove to be that once-in-a-lifetime storm for the Big Bend of Florida. The strongest one to hit there, actually, in at least 125 years. Thousands of homes have been damaged after after the hurricane struck as a Category 3 storm. Look at this gas station. This is in Perry, Florida. You can see the powerful winds just dismantling it and knocking it right down to the ground. In Tampa Bay, the storm surge there broke records with water levels that surpassed four and a half feet. So far, more than 75 people tonight have been rescued from the severe flooding that happened in St. Petersburg. It has been a long day, to say the least, for Floridians. The danger, though, is not over yet. Our meteorologist, Chad Myers, is in the CNN Weather Center. Chad, I know you've been following the path of the storm ever since we were talking last night. Where is it hitting right now, and how bad is it now that it's become a tropical storm? It still has an awful lot of tropical moisture. And what I don't like, what I'm seeing right now, is this flare-up of very heavy rainfall, kind of almost to the Piedmont of South Carolina. You know, raining down in the low country, it kind of just settles down into the, into the low country. But when you get it up here into the Piedmont, it all has to run back down. And it's going to get into these creeks and streams and then into the rivers and then push down toward the ocean. That's my concern at this point. And then back out here, the other flare-up we're seeing in the very warm Gulf current here, very warm water here, that's going to start to rotate into North Carolina. And so when that happens, we are going to see the potential for spinning storms and, of course, the chance of a tornado or two. We've already had, I think, at least four on the ground today so far. Yeah, so given that, I mean, the potential for tornadoes, what that could look like, I know everyone's keeping an eye on those alerts. What are the other threats Mm -hmm. that remain when it comes to the level of rain that we've seen? Sure. Uh, Well, Charleston now having its fifth highest tide ever on record, nowhere near where it was with Hugo, but still above nine nine feet there. And so we're going to travel this center of the hurricane, tropical storm, right there along the coast. And I'm really expecting significant beach erosion at this hour and all the way through tomorrow morning. Still have tornado watches along the coast because that's where the weather is going to rotate on shore. 
And this is interesting. It happens on every single hurricane. But if you look at the right or the northern part of the storm, you will see that all of these cells, as they come on shore, can be rotating. And for much of the day, we were seeing reports of water spout after water spout. And when they come on shore, they, they do damage. Yeah, uh, they do a lot of damage and a lot of concern yeah. about that. Chad Myers, I know you're still tracking this. We'll check back in with you. Thank you. CNN's Gloria Pasmino is in Crystal River, Florida, where officials say the city was decimated by the part of the storm yeah. that they got. I mean, Gloria, I know we've been hearing from residents that were rescued after a storm surge trapped them inside their homes. What are you seeing there on the ground tonight? Yeah, Caitlin, in fact, uh, we actually just got an update from uh, the local sheriff's office here. They have carried out about 75 water rescues uh, throughout the day. And as you said, uh, some parts of Crystal River, where we are right now, the water really came rushing in earlier today, especially after that high tide came into town. In this direction is a city hall. And over there, beyond uh, the traffic light, is where the river and the Gulf of Mexico come together. That water came rushing in. City Hall here in Crystal River had about eight feet of water, according to the mayor. So there is a curfew. 10 o'clock at night is the curfew here. And they are asking residents to stay away, stay off the streets. You can see that there are some people who are still out here taking a look at the conditions. But they are asking people to stay away uh, for those who evacuated to not come in yet because they just want to make sure that they can get to everyone who may be in, in need of some help. I mean, an eight-foot storm surge is just remarkable. What are the after effects of that? Well, look, I have been standing at this intersection uh, all day, and I know it doesn't look like it, but things actually are a little bit better here. A lot of the water has actually started to recede. Uh, I spoke to a woman uh, earlier today, uh, Caitlin, who told me she was born and raised right here in Crystal River. She is 64 years old, and she told me the water has never come up this high, and it's certainly never come up to the street. She told me last night she had to get out of her house through a window because the water was starting to rush in. We had all been preparing for the possibility of this storm surge coming in and really having uh, just such a, a direct impact on property and people, and it is very dangerous. But so far from what we can tell, it does look like people heeded those warnings, people evacuated for uh, for the most part, and especially in parts north of us to where we are right now, Cedar Key, that big bend area that took a direct hit. It looks like a lot of people actually managed to get out. Yeah, I mean, we're grateful to hear that as we see what this recovery process is going to look like. Gloria Pasmino, thank you. I want to turn now to Mayor Alan Perry of Hilton Head, South Carolina, which is, of course, under a state of emergency with flood and tornado watches. In effect, Mayor Perry, thank you for joining me tonight. I mean, as you're looking at this, I know it's getting dark and that's a challenge as well. But what is the biggest risk facing your community right now? Right. So so right now, what we're really facing is the storm surge. You know, the majority of the storm has moved through at this point, but we still have high tides right now. And we're expecting three to five feet on top of that. So that's what we're really most concerned about at this point in time. Three to five feet on top of uh, how does the high tide make that worse? Right. So so high tide is about 8.4 feet. So that's when the, the water's at its highest. And then you add three to five feet on top of that. And for the low-lying areas, that means, you know, devastated flooding. I know this is an area that has, has seen flooding before. Are you worried it's going to be breaking records tonight? What are What's your expectation on that front? 
No, I, I don't think we will we we will see record breaking. I think that um, there's just going to be some minor flooding that's going to take place. You know, we've had some other storms that have come through the area that didn't provide flooding. Uh, but one thing that this storm has done is that the winds didn't hit us as hard as we had, had expected. That's good. I mean, I know that's always something that's kind of unpredictable. You had declared a state of emergency, a local one for this storm, and y'all had already yeah. gotten some storm-related calls into the sheriff's office. I mean, what kind of calls are coming in now? Are people and first responders still able to go out and respond to those calls tonight? Yes, first responders are still out. So the majority of the calls to this point have been for downed trees, whether on cars, over roads, or on houses. Um, fortunately, no one has been injured to this point, but we have had some, some rain and it has weakened the ground. So, so we're still afraid that as some winds still come around this evening, that some trees may continue to fall. Mayor Alan Perry, I know you got a lot to keep your eye on tonight. Thank you for taking the time to join us and keep us updated. We will, and thank you for, for taking care of us and looking out for us. Absolutely. And of course, the state of Florida is going to be needing a lot of disaster aid. But there is a big question tonight about whether or not the federal funding is going to be there. This is a conversation playing out at the White House. A Democratic congressman who is also Florida's former top emergency official will join me next. Plus, it happened again. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing up during a news conference, prompting only more concerns and more questions about his health. We're keeping a close watch tonight on Adalia as it is now pushing northeast through Georgia and the Carolinas. Storm surges, flooding, strong winds, all are still major threats tonight. That is evident in the scenes that we are seeing in the Big Bend region of Florida, where damaged structures and rushing waters left some neighborhoods unrecognizable to people who live there. Florida's emergency director says their biggest concern are the roughly 190,000 customers who don't have power right now. Search and rescue teams are still making their way tonight through those hard-hit areas. Someone who knows what they are going through is joining me now, Florida Congressman Jared Moskowitz, the state's former director of emergency management. And Congressman, thank you for being here tonight. I mean, you know what it's like to be in this position. What is the biggest challenge for these response teams in the aftermath of a storm like what we just saw hit Florida? Well, thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Well, right now, the biggest challenge is search and rescue. Obviously, the surge is has been and continues to be the greatest challenge and the greatest potential loss of life. It is the water. It is not the wind. And so time is of the essence where, you know, water rushed into homes uh, very quickly within a matter of hours, eight feet in some areas, making sure that they can go home to home to make sure that people who need to be rescued by those swift water rescue teams that's the greatest challenge. And then obviously rushing in those resources that are life, health and safety. So, you know, drinkable water, ice, uh, food, making sure people get medical supplies. Sometimes they set up, you know, uh, portable hospitals. They set up, you know, portable, uh, you know, prescription centers so people can get their medicine. So that's what, you know, Director Kevin Guthrie right now is, is dealing with. All those pre-positioned assets that he moved in anticipation of the storm, those days of preparation are now coming into to full view. Yeah, I mean, we're just kind of getting the full view of the damage and what that's going to look like, how long that'll take. I mean, based on what you've seen and what you've heard, how long do you think that recovery could take? Well, look, Category 5 storms take a decade, right? Sometimes they take a little longer. I mean, Mike, uh, the Panhandle's still recovering after Hurricane Michael. Uh, and so, look, this was a Category 4 storm, right? It hit, you know, just on the cusp. It was a very strong Category 3 storm when it made landfall. You know, that eye wall came through these areas that have not been hit by a hurricane in over 100 years. 
And in those areas, a lot of them are fiscally constrained. They don't necessarily have the resources. And so there are some communities that may never look the same and others that will get rebuilt that will look slightly different. And so, look, this is a life changing event for some of these counties, some of these fiscally constrained counties. Uh, and But look, all of those resources from the state, all of those resources from FEMA that are going to come in, the FEMA reimbursement, the HUD money that comes in for housing, all that CDBG DR money that's going to come, that will help the community recover. Yeah, I mean, that's such a big part of this. And you've worked with Governor DeSantis in previous disasters in your previous role, including obviously hurricanes that hit Florida pretty regularly. What do you make of the job that, that he's done so far? The governor's doing a good job on, on emergency management, and he has since he came into office. He really understood that emergency management in Florida w- w- needed to be the top agency in the country. In fact, on the very first day that, that I took over uh, in 2019, the very first place we went to was Mexico Beach. And quite frankly, uh, the government in Florida, including the governor, has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into building the greatest emergency management agency of any state in the state of Florida. And they're battle tested, right? They just did Ian uh, a, a year ago. And so, you know, the state of Florida is on top of emergency management. We have to be when you have storms like Michael, Ian, and now Dahlia all in a four-year period. Uh, but look, you know, the state's, the state's doing a good job. You know, we've had a couple loss of life, but that's been kept down to a minimal. I think a lot of lessons learned uh, from Ian. A lot of people listened and heeded those evacuation warnings. But look, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, the, the immediate response is still ongoing before they eventually transition to recovery. Yeah, and of course, one person who has visited there frequently because of that is the FEMA administrator, Dan Criswell. She's coming to Florida today. She says that FEMA has about $3.4 billion left in its disaster relief fund. Maybe it sounds like a lot of money, but it's not when you think of what they need to do in Florida, what's happening in Maui, other disaster areas in the U.S. And the White House is asking Congress for $12 more billion for that disaster relief fund. But some Republicans have complained that it's tied to new Ukraine funding as well. Do you think that could imperil the passage of that money that they need for that disaster relief fund? No, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, I have the bill. I have the bill to refund the DRF, which is FEMA's fund, for $12 billion in the House. I filed that bill. Senator Rubio filed it uh, in the Senate, so it's a bipartisan, bicameral bill. Neither of our bills are moving. And so, yes, the Biden administration coupled that together with Ukraine, which I support the Biden package, but I also support moving these pieces of legislation individually if necessary. The FEMA administrator said these communities, both in Maui and in Florida, are going to have the money that they need for the response. But one of the things that we know is that hurricane season is just beginning. We got all of September, we got all all of October, and reimbursement for the state and these towns will be slowed down. And that's not something emergency management should be focused on. They shouldn't have to worry, you know, that their money is not coming on time. That's not what they should be focused on. They should be focused on response and recovery and rebuilding. And so Congress needs to do its job, right? Emergency managers out there are saving lives. They're preparing for their communities, right? Every single solitary day away from the families, away from their kids. People are losing their houses. They're losing loved ones. Congress needs to do its job and they need to fund the one agency that helps people in their time of need when we face disasters in this country, and that's FEMA. I mean, it sounds like you're worried that it might not get passed. Well, Caitlin, listen, we've on a six-week break right now. We're coming back for three weeks in September. We're only going to work two weeks in October. We're only going to work two weeks in November. Congress hasn't passed a lot of pieces of legislation this year. 
right? You got the Freedom Caucus holding up bills, going to the floor by voting against the rule. So yeah, I'm worried about that dysfunction. Now, with that said, right, disaster management has shown that it's bipartisan, it's nonpartisan. You've seen people like Governor Santos and Joe Biden work together, not just in Surfside and in Ian. So I'm hoping that sentiment comes to Washington and we can pass this on a bipartisan basis. So, I mean, what if it doesn't get done? I mean, who should voter, voters hold accountable if that funding doesn't get passed and FEMA's forced to kind of re-strategize and move pots of money around? Well, they got to hold the legislature accountable. I mean, we are the, we are the legislative branch. We are the appropriators, right? And so they got to hold us accountable. If those bills do not move in the House and the Senate, they got to hold leadership of both houses of the Senate and the House accountable. Something President Biden said today when he was speaking on this in Maui, he said, quote, I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis now. But some Republicans who are running for his job are doing just that. I mean, how do you deal with a crisis if lawmakers and the White House can't even find consensus on it? Well, look, not every disaster, right, is necessarily because of the climate crisis. But I can tell you the hurricanes that are affecting Florida are. This went from a tropical storm to a category four storm in 24 hours. It's called rapid intensification. It's the same thing that happened in Hurricane Michael. That's supposed to be the exception. It's now becoming the rule. Why? The Gulf of Mexico is basically a hot tub, right? It's 98 degrees. We had a buoy measured 98 degrees off of the state of Florida. And that's what's leading to this rapid intensification. So that is where climate change is affecting the strength of these storms. You know, watching the Republican debate when they asked, is climate change real? Yes or no? It wasn't a trick question. People looked around like to see what the answer was from the teacher. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? Climate change is real. Climate change is affecting uh, these storms and it's affecting things happening in areas that haven't happened before. Tornado Alley is expanding. We're seeing flooding in different areas, fires, right? And hurricanes that are much stronger. And so, listen, we got to be honest, which is, is that Climate change is going to not only affect us globally, but it is going to make these natural disasters much stronger than we're used to seeing in the past. I mean, it wasn't just that that they looked around at that question. Vivek Ramaswamy said that, I believe his quote was, the climate change agenda is a hoax. Yeah, yeah, no, he did say that, right? Why not just blame the deep state or say it was woke? I mean, it, it, it was it was a weak example of, you know, what it's like to be a troll running running for Congress and try, I'm running for the presidency and trying to tell people what they think they want to hear because, oh, I'm going to get to the right of everybody, right? I'm going to get to the right of everybody. I'm going to say climate change is a hoax. I mean, what, what, a, what a joke. That's not leadership. That's placating to the lowest common denominator, right? In the state of Florida during the Rick Scott administration, they didn't even say the word climate change. They would come hearing after hearing after hearing, and they wouldn't even say the word climate change, right? It's totally ridiculous, especially here uh, in, in the state of Florida. And so, look, we got to obviously work on a bipartisan level to address this. Climate change is not just going to affect Democrats. It's not just going to affect the libs, right? This is something that's going to affect us all together. And we got to figure out how we're going to work together to solve it. Congressman Jared Moskowitz, a lot going on in your home state tonight. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Thank you. Ahead, if Rudy Giuliani was not already strapped for cash, as his attorney claims with his ballooning legal bills, He just lost a defamation lawsuit that was filed by those two Georgia election workers, and it could cost him dearly. Tonight, Rudy Giuliani's legal and money problems have gone from bad to worse. 
In a scathing ruling today, a federal judge held Giuliani liable for defaming those two Georgia election workers who he falsely accused of election fraud. Of course, you will remember them. The decision now means that Giuliani, whose own attorney argued just weeks ago that he was virtually broke in court, could be on the hook for a major payout to Ruby Freeman and to Shea Moss. It's hard to forget their searing testimony before the January 6th Congressional Committee, the mother and daughter just doing their jobs and their civic duty, smeared with allegations of pulling a fast one with suitcases of illegal ballots. They have, of course, in turn accused Giuliani of turning their lives into a living nightmare and putting them in danger with lies like this one. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, outsta- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. Joining me now is the attorney for Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, Mike Gottlieb. First off, just for our audience to know, it, it wasn't a USB, it was a ginger mint, but uh, we all ha- have come around to see that. I just wonder, how did Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss respond when they heard the judge's ruling today? Uh, thanks for having me, Caitlin. It's great to be here. Um, you know, they they have been through so much um, and, and really been heroic uh, in their willingness to, you know, to not lie down and to stand up and fight uh, for what is right not just for them, but for democracy and for the future of the protection of election workers throughout the United States. So they were very pleased to hear about this result today. Um, They feel vindicated, uh, but they know that there is more work to do and that there is a long road ahead uh, for the two of them in restoring their reputation uh, and in trying to get some semblance of normalcy back in lives that have truly been shattered uh, by the kinds of grotesque lies that you just played a clip of. And, and yes, uh, to your point, it was a ginger mint. It was not a, uh, <laughs> it was not a USB or a, or a vial of cocaine or heroin. Do they see this as a step to, I mean, what was most searing about their testimony was talking about how they didn't feel comfortable going to the grocery store or going out in public. I mean, do they see this as a step on, on getting back their reputations that Giuliani took from them? Yeah, this is this is definitely a step. This is a significant milestone. It is a finding of liability on every count uh, of our claims that we brought uh, in this lawsuit, and so it is a significant validation of what they have been saying since day one, which is that they were unfairly and improperly targeted for just doing their job. And so, so it is a it's a significant step and a significant milestone. There will, of course, be. Uh, a trial on the quantification mm-hmm. of damages, and that will give our clients the opportunity to have an actual day in court. It'll also give Mr. Giuliani that opportunity. Uh, so that is still to come, and that will be significant as well. But but this is a very significant step in uh, a finding of liability on uh, all of our counts of defamation, every other claim, and a finding that punitive damages are appropriate in this case. Yeah, I, I mentioned what the judge said in the in the ruling. I mean, really dropping the hammer on Giuliani, saying that he was only paying lip service to orders that required him to turn over documents. He was telling the court that he couldn't because his phones had been seized, his devices had been seized as part of this separate investigation. Why do you think he chose to take what could be a potentially huge loss rather than comply with those orders? 
You know, there's some of that uh, questioning in the court's order today, and I think only he can explain why he's made the strategic decisions that he's made to, to show up and litigate this case, but just not turn over any of the discovery and evidence that we asked for and to not comply with the court's orders for everything from producing basic documents to us on his financial condition to paying us uh, $89,000 in attorney's fees that he was required to pay us and still hasn't. So I, I don't know why he's chosen this path. I can't speak for him uh, or, or for the strategic decisions he's making, but it's not been a very effective strategy. It's one that's led him to a place where liability is now established. And, and we uh, really look forward to being able to put forward our damages case and, uh, uh, and, and to pursue that over the coming months. So, um, an advisor for Giuliani said that the ruling was, and I'm quoting this advisor now, a prime example of the weaponization of our justice system and that it should be reversed. What is your response to that? Uh, I very much look forward to their appeal. Uh, the, the weaponization of the justice system is when powerful individuals refuse to uh, uh, be accountable to the justice system. It's not when people who have traditionally lacked that power go to the justice system and fight over years and years to get uh, their opponents to comply with basic discovery obligations. That, so in our view, the weaponization of the justice system is when uh, powerful individuals hide uh, behind it and refuse uh, to have accountability. And that is exactly what uh, Mr. Giuliani attempted to do in this case. He attempted to get out of all of his obligations to do what every other person who ever gets sued has to do, which is to turn over uh, you know, potentially damaging or incriminating text messages and emails to the other side in discovery. It is a painful, laborious process, but it is one that all responsible parties who are who sue or get sued comply with, particularly people who are United States attorney uh, for the most famous district in the United States. They are expected to comply with those obligations. Yeah, the judge was basically saying, you know, he knows this better than anyone else. You mentioned that hearing where they're going to make a decision on how much he has to pay Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and damages. How high do you think that could go? Could it be hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions? I mean, what's your expectation? So we haven't quantified damages yet just because of the stage that the case is in. But, you know, our expectation is that we'll be able to prove tens of millions of dollars in compensatory damages before you get to punitive damages. So we expect it to be a significant uh, damages case that we'll present to the jury. And we're confident in our ability to document and demonstrate it. Tens of millions? Yep, you heard me correctly. That's what you believe Rudy Giuliani could be ordered to pay? Well, if, if, we're, if we're successful, I, I would hope so, yes. His attorney has been arguing in court, notwithstanding the fact that he took a private plane to Georgia last week, and we haven't found out whose plane that was, though I've asked his attorneys. But his other attorney was arguing in court that, that basically he doesn't have money to pay for, for small legal bills do you think Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss will ever see any of the damages that, that they do get? You know, uh, Rudy Giuliani wouldn't be the first person to try to evade uh, accountability and responsibility by um, not paying <laughs> or, or claiming to not be able to pay. Uh, we don't know yet. We haven't seen the evidence. I think if you read uh, the, the court's opinions today, opinion today, you'll see uh, that a lot of the evidence that would go to net worth and financial conditions are documents and information that we've been seeking for months now and have never been provided. So 
you know, we'll have to get that information from them. He's now been ordered to turn that over to us as part of the next phase of this case and be able to make a determination of what, uh, you know, may or may not be uh, collectible. So all of that remains to be seen. It's going to happen quickly. The, the, the court has set a fairly aggressive timetable out uh, for us to go through that discovery process and to have a, a trial on the damages phase. We will see what that number is. Mike Gottlieb, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Ahead, there are major new questions about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his health. The 81-year-old lawmaker froze again mid-answer at a press conference. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all are gonna need a minute. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to answer our questions about that moment. A jarring moment in Kentucky today. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing for over 30 seconds while he was in the middle of answering a reporter's question the second time that this has happened in just a matter of weeks. Running for re-election in 2026. That's right. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all, we're going to need a minute. And a string of... They are both difficult moments to watch, no matter where your politics lie. And they, those two moments are raising questions about Mitch McConnell's future as the Republican leader in the Senate, a position that he has held for decades. After both incidents, aides said that McConnell was feeling just lightheaded. He did attend a fundraiser this evening. He did not make any mention of what happened earlier today in Kentucky. But this time, unlike a month ago when it first happened, as you saw there on the right, McConnell's office said that the 81-year-old lawmaker will see a doctor. This comes months after McConnell suffered a fall at what was then the Trump Hotel in Washington. He also had a concussion, according to his office. Joining us tonight is CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you know, obviously you have not treated the senator. You can't provide any solid conclusions without examining him, him yourself. But you are a neurosurgeon. I mean, what do you see in those 30 seconds from today? Well, you know, that, that is a pretty pretty classic episode of freezing, uh, the same, same term that you used. I mean, that, that is what I see. You see someone who becomes frozen in their speech. Even their face is, is sort of frozen. Their body is frozen. You can see his hands, uh, Caitlin, are sort of clenching the sides of the, the lectern. One of his aides comes over to try and raise his hands, but he's, he's really sort of locked in, in place. He doesn't look like he's fainting or something like that. And, and you'd be surprised that there's a pretty long list of things that could potentially cause this. Uh, is it a temporary sort of lack of blood flow to the brain, something known as a TIA, uh, a mini seizure, something like that? Those seem less likely, but uh, you see people who have Parkinson's disease who will become kind of frozen if their medications start to wear off. We don't know, again, as you say, what he has, but that would be an example of something that could cause that. And that's often associated with what's, what's called a masked facies. People really lose expression of their face. 
um, at the same time. So, you know, we don't know. We do know that the aides who came to his, his side there, they didn't seem that surprised, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen this twice, but you get the sense that they see it quite a bit, even knew how to react. And one of the ways that they, there wasn't this sense of urgency, oh, we need to get him to the hospital right away, which makes you think that they kind of have dealt with this, may already know what's going on. And as uh, has been reported, he was doing fine later on. So whatever it was came and, and went pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. And they didn't rush him out of the room either. He, he t- right. took more questions, I mean, after moments after that, and they were a bit stilted. His office came out later. They said that he was just feeling lightheaded at that event. But that's the same reason they gave us back in July when he froze for those 20 or seconds. So that moment that was on the right side earlier. Would that be a reason, right. though, you know, feeling lightheaded that someone would stop speaking for, for a sustained period of time and kind of clenching the lectern? You know, as I said, I think it's a long list of things, but I, I would put that pretty low down on the list. I think someone who gets lightheaded, uh, they may need to sit down. They could be confused as a result of, you know, just being lightheaded or feeling like they're going to faint, but not the frozen, the frozen sort of face, the frozen sort of clenching of the lectern. Um, those, those suggest that something else is going on. Again, a mini seizure perhaps or medications wearing off. We don't know. But I'm glad that he got checked out because, again, even though it sounds like this is something his aides have been dealing with, these were pretty characteristic episodes. And this is, you know, my area of expertise. I'd certainly want to take a look at him, examine him, and make sure we weren't missing something else going on here. Yeah. I mean, there are major questions uh, for his office on that, on those follow-ups tonight. You know, it's not just the other yeah. times that, that McConnell has frozen Sanjay. He's had several health scares you know, what do you make yeah. of the sequence of those events? I mean, obviously, he, he's, he is 81. A lot of us have parents and grandparents. You know, we know how concerned we'd be for those people if they had moments like that. What do you make of that sequence of events? Well, you know, I, I remember that back in 2019, even, you remember, Caitlin, he, he fell and fractured his shoulder. So that was four years ago. And there was a lot of concern then. He had polio as a child. He's always had difficulty walking as a result. But this year alone, I mean, you look at the list of things, you go back to March, for example, that fall that he had at the hotel, he got a concussion, he broke ribs, a significant fall, falls in the elderly, huge concern. And he, he obviously had that, was hospitalized for a period of time. He's had this trouble hearing reporters. And, and I don't know if that's actual trouble hearing or it's just part of the same thing that we saw with the freezing where you're getting distracted, you're losing your train of thought, and you asked for the question to be repeated, not because you didn't hear it, but because of those things. And then, you know, as we've talked about most recently, these episodes of, of freezing, if, if the doctors know what's, what's driving this, if it's a medication interaction or a medication wearing off, that could be the case and might explain why they didn't quickly usher him out of the room into a hospital. But the, the sequence clearly seems to have been picking up at least what we know. You do get the impression that his aides and others know a lot more because they see him obviously a lot more than we do. Yeah, that's a great point, Sanjay. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you, as always, for sharing your expertise with us. You got it, Caitlin. Thank you. After nonstop school shootings in America and little actions, little action, I should say, students at one of the most recent crime scenes have come up with a way that, like no other, can sum up and draw attention to the gun violence crisis. It is raw. It is extremely powerful. We'll show it to you what students at the University of North Carolina did next. Tonight, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is holding a vigil following a deadly shooting on their campus this week. 
On Monday, a graduate student shot and killed a faculty member in a chemistry building on campus, leading to an hours-long lockdown at the school. Some students were seen jumping out of windows to find safety in the chaos after those shots had been fired. You can see them here. Today, the school student newspaper, the Daily Tar Heel, filed its front page and filled it with text messages sent and received by students during that long lockdown. Some of them are understandably explicit, but that is the kind of language that people use when they feel like their lives are at risk. The messages are just snapshots of what it is like to live through a school shooting. Are you safe? Get under the desk or run if you can. Please pray for us. I want to go straight to the source tonight, the Daily Tar Heels editor-in-chief, Emmy Martin, who is a student at the school. Emmy, I think this front page is really brilliant. Can you just tell us how you came up with this idea and how you're doing tonight? Thank you, Caitlin. Um, I'm doing all right. I think like any student at UNC, it's it's a weird feeling. Um, We've lived through a campus shooting. It's something I couldn't say before Monday, and now I can. Um, But the, the newspaper was an idea that I had after seeing so many texts from loved ones and, and friends and family members on my phone and also on social media from students across UNC's campus. Um, and so the Daily Tar Heels team immediately started asking other students for those texts and they just came pouring in so much raw feeling and emotion and pain. Um, and we knew that had to be our front page. I mean, it almost makes you, my little brother is your age, he's in college, and it almost makes you sick to just read those messages and to know, you know, the, the panic that, that y'all were feeling. And you're, you're not just the editor-in-chief of the, of the paper, you're a student yourself. I mean, how is it on campus right now? How are, how are your other students doing? It's eerily quiet on campus. Students are still processing, um, I know, at least in our newsroom, It's been tense. There's been a lot of tears shed. It's different. And I think our campus will be different from now on. How do you think it'll make your your coverage different? I mean, this is your second week on the job, I should note. Just your your second front page was supposed to be about the football game. And instead, it turned into this. How does it change your coverage, you think? I think it's put a mark on the year for everyone, um, but especially our newspaper. So much of our coverage is, of course, going to shift to the aftermath of a school shooting and how our students are coping um, and what our community is facing and doing in response to such a tragic situation for everyone. Um, And yeah, you're right. It's only our second week. So many people are fresh. Um, I'm fresh. This is a new job for me, but we're really doing our best to make sure we are reflecting our community and serving our community in the best way that we can. Well, you are. I mean, you're not just even serving your, your community. The page, the front page has made such a huge impact. Uh, everyone at CNN was talking about this front page today. President Biden actually even posted it tonight saying, you know, no Americans should have to send text like these. What do you what do you make of the fact that the president of the United States is sharing the front page that you and your your other students at the paper put together? It was just absolutely overwhelming, mind-blowing to see the president post our newspaper on all of his social medias. Um, Honestly, all of the outpouring of love from people across the nation has kept us going. It's been so rewarding 
to see that people are reading what we put out um, and are connecting with it on such an emotional level. I think anyone who's lived through an active shooter situation has received these texts. And I think it also just points to a bigger issue. Yeah, I mean, what's sad is the reason so many people can relate to it is because so many people have lived through something like that. Exactly. And I think that's part of the reason that it drew so much attention, especially from the president. Emmy Martin, we are all thinking of everyone on campus, especially you and your your colleagues at the paper. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me, Caitlin. Ahead is a big shift coming in U.S. drug policy. News about an announcement that it had made at the White House and marijuana in America tonight. Before we go tonight, our final word is about weed. The Department of Health and Human Services recommending that the feds significantly ease restrictions on marijuana. Nearly 40 states have already legalized pot use in some form or another, but it's still classified at the federal level alongside drugs like heroin and LSD, considered, of course, as the most dangerous controlled substances. But officials want to change that, reclassifying weed in a category with drugs like ketamine and testosterone, which are considered to have a moderate to low potential for dependence and abuse. The change would not mean that marijuana is suddenly legal everywhere, but it would open up more research, expand the market, and allow marijuana businesses more access to banks. The final decision now rests with the DEA. We'll keep you updated. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We'll pass things over to CNN Primetime with Abby Phillip. Hi, Abby. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.